Daniel chapter 1. I want to just read one verse to you this morning as our text. I'm reminded of the verse where Paul says that in, know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Um, if there's been a, a time when things are perilous, not just physically, but certainly spiritually, uh, we would say that our day is perilous times. Uh, we go to the book of Daniel because Daniel lived in a culture that was very similar to the one which we find ourselves. Daniel's situation was very similar. I've preached at some length through these early chapters of Daniel about being a Daniel in a Babylon world and seeking in our culture that is a culture that is increasingly not only ungodly but at times even anti-godly. Uh, that how do we respond to that? How do we live in that? We look at Daniel's example I was reminded this week, as if, as if this week was any different from any other week. This week was one that just stood in my mind because I knew I was preaching on this topic. And in just this past week, for example, um, we've seen a, a Christian charitable agency that has completely changed its view and its, its approach to things uh, simply because of governmental pressure and because of cultural pressure on certain social issues. I've seen a professor at a Christian college who flipped his position on these very same issues on gender and sexuality from what the Bible says to something that is more comfortable with our culture. I have seen a pastor, a, a professing Christian pastor who taught that Jesus, while he was here on this earth, committed sin. Um, I have heard so many of these things. One of the things that is on many people's mind, and I, I know that some of you are aware of this, is a bill, a law that is being presented in our Congress. And I want to say from the very start, this is not a political statement that I'm about to make. This is a uh, moral statement. This is a religious liberty statement. Um, I, don't, I don't stand up and try to promote politics. We leave our politics at the door. But this is not something that's just political. This is something that is to the truth of God's word and affects us as Christians in our practice of our religious freedom. Some of you have heard of what is called the Equality Act. And as you know, what, what political parties on both sides like to do, they like to give it a, a nice name that's going to appeal to everybody so that if anybody opposes it, then they look bad for opposing. Man, that, that sounds like a great thing. And the intent of this is to extend the rights that were a part of the Civil Rights Act back in the 1960s to extend that beyond race and ethnicity to extend it to the LGBTQT, um, and I think I got that right, I'm not doing that jokingly, uh, but to that community. And that sounds good because even as Christians we would say people are to be treated with respect. People are to be treated with dignity. There shouldn't be unjust conduct toward anyone. But this goes beyond that and it begins to infringe in the the legal experts that have looked at this understand that this is going to be an attack. In fact, Ed Stetzer, one of a Christian leader in our, in our country, has said that this is the greatest attack on religious liberties in a lifetime. And it will begin to put pressure on churches and individuals and Christian agencies and mission organizations that hold to a biblical standard and understanding of these matters and pressure them into changing their view. You either conform or you are undermined. You are attacked. You are judged. Uh, you will, in, well, some use the term in our day, canceled. 
And that is where we stand. That bill has already passed our House of Representatives in Washington. It's before the Senate. And there's a possibility, it's uncertain whether it will pass the Senate or not. And if you haven't had the chance to reach out to your senator as Americans, we have that privilege. That's a right that we have to speak to our representatives on this and ask them not to vote for that. But if it passes the Senate, it's already been promised that it will be signed into law. Now, when things like this begin to happen, there's generally a process that we sort of respond. If you're like me, uh, the first response is somewhat overwhelming. You ever feel overwhelmed by all the things that are taking place in our country that we seem to have no control over? And we feel like, man, that's why there's a lot of anger on all sides. There's an anger, a sense of being overwhelmed by what's taking place. And then that sense of being overwhelmed leads to outrage. We're angry about it. I was talking with someone just this morning, and they said, you know, I turned the news on, and I get so angry about the things that I'm hearing. Now, I know none of y'all are like that. That's clearly the 8 o'clock crowd that does that. Y'all are all calm, cool, and collected. Amen? At least you're honest. <laughs> Sometimes your, your blood just starts to boil, and there's that frustration that adds to that. I've, I've talked to so many Christians lately, and they, they are saying things that they know as Christians they really shouldn't say, and they're angry, and they're, they're feeling this way because of this sense of a declining culture. I want to preach to you this morning, and I'm not going to take the time to look at every single illustration from Daniel but I want to preach on a Christian's response to a declining culture. Daniel's culture that he lived in in Babylon was very similar. They were idolatrous, just like ours is. Ours worships different idols, but they are idolatrous nonetheless. We worship sports. We worship entertainment. We worship finances. We worship materialism. We worship cultural acceptance. We seek after all these idols. Uh, Daniel's, Daniel's culture was intolerant. Remember what King Nebuchadnezzar said, you either bow or you burn. And we are headed toward a culture that is, while professing to be tolerant, increasingly intolerant about these things. You either conform or you're going to be responded to. You're going to be, you're going to be judged. And so as we think about that, I want you to see some truths from Daniel this morning on how do we respond to a declining culture. How do we respond to an anti-God culture? I don't want you to freak out this morning, but if you're taking notes, write down 1 through 10. I have 10 points this morning. Now, in the 8 o'clock service, 15 people got up and walked out when I said that. No, they really didn't. Just two. But if you're taking notes, these are, these are going to be quick, but I want you to see these because I think this is important for us. Very simple, very basic, but I, I see in my own heart and I see in others, I see friends that struggle with how do I respond to this. Do we conform? Do we give in? Do we fight back? Do we get angry? How do we respond? Number one, I want you to see from Daniel, let's be realistic rather than naive. When we see these things happen, if this law passes and we lose a little bit more of our religious liberty, let's be realistic about it rather than naive. Daniel knew the importance of drawing a line in our text verse in verse 8. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat. Daniel has already accepted a Babylonian name. He knows there's something. He's being taught Babylonian information. But he says, look, this is the one place I will draw the line. I can't, bend, I, can't, I can't bend on this or I will break. I will not go against God's law. 
And so Daniel puts this to the test. You know that it turns out well for them. But he says, I know where to draw the line. Look, in our understanding, in our culture, we've got to be ready that the, our, the, the enemies of the soul, the, the flesh, the devil, the world system, they will never be satisfied. How many of you probably have ever thought in your time and you've lived, some of us have lived longer than others, but if you've ever looked at our culture, our world, and said, I just don't see how it can get any worse. And then you walk, you turn on the television or you go online and what do you see? I mean, I, I have said, I don't know how many times in the last month, just when I think it can't get any crazier, somebody out crazies the crazy. And that's just here in the church. That's not even in our culture. I was starting to say just kidding, but I am not kidding. <laughs> but do you see that? You see, man, and, and just, and I look back to things that I, I, I've thought and said, uh, you know, 10 years ago, and the things that have transpired since, there's a trajectory that we're on. And we can expect that there will be an increase for believers and those who hold to scriptural truth. There will be an increased marginalization. We will be pushed. Those who hold to scripture as the basis of truth will be pushed to the sidelines and even categorized as, as hateful and racist and bigots simply because we hold to scriptural truth. I'm not talking about legitimate, the legitimate issue of racism. I'm talking about we will be treated in that way. I'm not being negative. I'm not being pessimistic. I'm saying that's where things are headed. You look at how those terms are used today. They are increasingly used of those who will hold to the biblical truth on these matters. And so it will increase. That will happen. You say, preacher, does that discourage you? I don't like it, but it doesn't discourage me. We'll see more about that in just a moment. Let's be realistic. There will be increased intimidation. Those who dissent on this will suffer the consequences. You take a Christian in the public square, whether they're in politics, whether they're in entertainment, whether they're in education, if they speak for the truth, they will be bullied into going along. That's why there's the Christian agency that I mentioned that after several years of trying to find a different way around this, finally gave in on this matter. Why? Because they were intimidated into changing their views. And there will be indoctrination. We can expect that. Let's not be naive about that. Through our education sometimes, clearly through our media, clearly through entertainment, you watch a television program and inevitably some of these topics will be worked into it and promoted and endorsed and normalized. Telev the, the commercials advertisements on TV, and it's, it's constantly, what is it doing? It's slowly acclimatizing people on these matters. And we'll, we'll constantly be taught that and, and instructed in it by our culture. So let's not be naive. Let's, let's respond with realism. Let's see things as they truly are. Number two, let's respond with firmness rather than accommodation. Let's respond with firmness rather than accommodation. There are those who will say, well, if we'll just give in a little on this, everybody will be happy. But what people have found over the last decade or so is that on these issues, if you give a little, that's not, you know, it's got to take another step and a little more and a little more. And accommodation will not work. I believe it was, I'm going to probably butcher this quotation, but I believe it was Winston Churchill that said accommodation is like the man that feeds the crocodile hoping that it'll eat him last. And that's exactly when we try to accommodate our culture. And I've seen this happen with believers where they, they don't want to offend. Look, I don't want to offend anyone as I share the truth, but sometimes the truth can offend. 
And so they don't want to offend and they don't want to hurt anybody's feelings and they don't want to do damage to the gospel. So they say, well, let's back up a little bit. And every time we back up a little bit, we give up ground. Look, the world is not going to be satisfied with this. We need to respond with firmness. Daniel said, I will not defile myself with the king's meat. I'm not going to participate in this. I draw the line. We must stand for biblical truth. Let me just say to you, we are not standing for cultural norms on these matters. We're not standing for this because this was the way it's always been in our society. Society can be wrong. Society has often been wrong. Even when it's gotten a lot of things right. So society is not the basis of truth. God's word is the basis of truth. What does God say about these matters? Amen. God's word is clear. God's word is certain on this. When we think about the truth of marriage, it is clear from Scripture, from creation to the teaching of Christ to the, to the mystery of the church, that marriage is one man and one woman. God set that up. Jesus said that. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. He took as the understanding, that basis, that marriage is one man and one woman. And people will say, oh, well, Jesus never said anything about that. I would humbly and kindly say that that person is essentially biblically illiterate. And I say that with as much love as I possibly can. Because the scriptures are clear about these matters. This is, not, this is not my opinion. This is not your opinion. This is not our culture. That This is what we grew up with. This is what the Bible teaches. And we need to be clear about that. But let's respond with firmness rather than accommodation. We need to respond, number three, with courage instead of fear. I see a lot of people that are fearful. As soon as you start talking about these things, oh, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to think about that. And I'm going to be honest, there are times in my life where I, I just get tired of hearing about it so much that I just, I just don't even want to think about it, I don't want to talk about it, I don't want to dwell on it. I don't really desire to get up and preach about it except that it's in God's Word. I'd a whole lot rather preach about a lot of other truths in Scripture. But the fact is, is that this must be responded to with the truth. We must respond with courage rather than fear. Think about Daniel and his friends throughout the entire book of Daniel. They stood for God's truth with courage, even when their lives were threatened. Some fear the, the trouble that the future holds. Some are afraid that uh, our convictions and they're, they're concerned about all these things that we see as a reality. But we've got to be courageous. Number four, we need to demonstrate confidence rather than timidity. Do you remember the story in Daniel 3? Notice with Daniel and his three friends. They're told to bow down. They don't bow down, and the king brings them up, and he says, I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. And do you remember what they said to him? They said, oh, king, our God is able to deliver us from this fiery furnace. Do you believe that God is able to deliver us from the situation that we're in? A few of you. I believe God is able. I believe that God is able to miraculously turn this country around and turn and bring revival to our nation and bring revival to our churches and bring revival to our people. But you remember what they said? But be it known unto thee, O king, if not... If God doesn't choose to deliver us, we will not worship your idol that you have set up. 
We believe God is able. Did God deliver them? Yes, he did in a miraculous way. He walked with them in the fire. But whether he did or he didn't, they said, we will not do it. What we have to understand is, is that as we pray and as we engage and we do the things that we're called to do as a church and as believers, God may miraculously intervene and change some things and turn things around. And it would be at this point a great miracle if he did. But if he does not, we will not bow. We will not worship the idol that our culture has set up. Let's have confidence rather than timidity. Here's a hard one. Number five. Let's respond with love rather than out of a place of anger. Turn on the news. You hear people say things. You hear things misrepresented. You hear words twisted. You hear, you see um, Christians changing their position and their views. Be careful that anger does not fill your heart. The people, the vast majority of the people that hold a different view than you and I are not out to radically transform and ruin our nation. Just because they disagree with us, first of all, but that's not their intent. There are many people who simply are persuaded that they are right, and they believe in their heart that they are being loving and even Christ-like. So don't, don't look at them as the enemy. People are not our enemy. Who is our enemy? Satan is our enemy. And we've got to be very careful that we don't respond out of a place of anger rather than a place of love. We see people that disagree with us, that hold some of these views, that engage in some of these lifestyles and things that we would say, yes, that is wrong. But hatred and anger toward them is just wrong too. We need to respond. We need to recognize that they are human beings. They are created in the image of God. They are fallen human beings, but they need the grace of God just like you and I needed the grace of God. And so we welcome and we love and we receive, but we don't affirm their sin. We don't affirm them in their sin, but we recognize that just like every one of us, that we were hopeless, hell-bound sinners, and but the grace of God reached to us and saved us. Aren't you glad for that day that God snatched you? Some of us he snatched out of self-righteousness and religion. And some he snatched out of wickedness and sin. The grace of God causes us to respond in love rather than from anger. Number six, we engage rather than withdraw. There's a temptation sometimes when things aren't working. And we see, wow, you know, let me, let me tell you that the solution to our nation, as we'll see in just a minute, is not a political solution. It's not a political answer. But that doesn't mean that we disengage, that we don't use the opportunities God has given to us to make a difference in our world. Daniel and his friends, they served in the government of Babylon. They were engaged. They were working. They were serving. They were ministering. They were working for the peace of their city. And so we are to engage. We're not just to withdraw. We're not to pull back and find us a cave somewhere and become a bunch of hermits and just pull out of society altogether. We are to engage. We are to engage not just through politics but through ministry and through service. We are to reach out to our community. That's why our core teams are geared to go and to serve in our communities in various places. And I'm thankful for so many of you who've had a part in reaching out and engaging with our community through those works. There'll be more of that as we go on, more opportunities to serve. We need to do that now more than ever. 
We don't need to just pull, hey, that person's different from me. That person had that political sign in their yard, or that person holds to that view, or that person has that bumper sticker on their car. I don't want anything to do with them. No, now is the time to engage, to reach to them, to show them the love of Christ. We engage rather than withdraw. Number seven, let's respond with clarity rather than confusion. The world needs to hear the message of the gospel proclaimed with clarity. This world is confused about what the gospel is. There are those who think that we think coming into this church makes you a Christian. Nothing could be farther from the truth. You can, come in this, you can sit in this church, but that doesn't make you a Christian any more than going out and sitting in your garage drinking a quart of oil makes you a car. <laughs> what makes you a Christian, what means you're on your way to heaven, is that you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. So we don't think that we're better than other people. We know that we're a bunch of redeemed sinners. We know that only by the grace of God are we on our way to heaven, only because of Jesus Christ. And that needs to be presented clearly. We need to be clear about the grace of God and about the message of salvation. We need to make sure that they understand that getting saved and trusting Christ isn't adapting a political view. It's not adapting an ideological view. It's understanding our need as sinners that we need Jesus. So we need to be clear and respond with clarity rather than confusion. Number eight, we need to keep focus rather than getting distracted. There are many things, good things, that will get us distracted. I'm going to just, I feel led to say this this morning. Do people know more about your political views because of social media than they do about Jesus? Are we getting distracted by some good things? Is it good to stand up for our nation? Sure. Is it good to stand up for the values that we hold and we believe are based in biblical truth and values? Yeah. But what's more important? Let's not get sidetracked. Let's not get distracted. Let's remember that our focus is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our task as a church, our purpose as a church is to glorify God and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love America. But I don't love America more than I love Jesus. Amen. I, there's a number of things that I feel strongly about. But the minute I begin to feel more strongly about them than I do the gospel is the minute that I've become distracted from what I'm supposed to be focused on. Let's maintain our focus. Let's keep our focus rather than being distracted. Our primary purpose as believers and as Christians is a gospel purpose, not a political purpose. Number nine. See, some of y'all were terrified, and I've gone through, I'm on point nine already. Let's respond with fervency rather than complacency. Let's respond with fervency rather than complacency. We need a greater sense of urgency. The one thing that disturbs me the most is seeing Christians who are angry, but they're not urgent. They're angry about what's going on. They're mad as they can be about what's going on, but there's no, there's no sense of spiritual urgency. I'm talking about an urgency for a heart of revival, for God to do a work. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain to build it. And the only way that this, this nation, that our church is going to experience the glory and the power of God is through a spirit of revival. 
That's why we're praying and looking toward our revival services at the end of April. Herb Revis will be here to preach the word, but he's not bringing revival. It is the Holy Spirit of God that will stir us and renew us and revive us. And that's what we need to experience. And that is what America desperately needs the most. Our culture, our society needs that more than anything else. And we lose that sense of urgency. A year ago around this time, we were preparing and planning to go up on the mountain to pray for revival. And then as a consequence of not being able to go up on the mountain, about a million Christians signed up and said, I'm praying for revival. But I wonder, do we have that same sense of urgency that we had then? If, we've, if we had it then, we desperately need it now. A sense of urgency, but we get complacent. Things just go on. And here's what will happen. The devil takes two steps forward and one step back, and Christians say, well, it's not as bad as it was, so let's just settle in here. But then what does he do? He takes another couple steps forward and one step back, and now he's two steps ahead of where he was to start with. Let's not be complacent. Let's not, you know, things like this happen. This, this, this law gets passed, or the court case a number of years ago that was decided and changed a number of things, and people got all riled up, and now people just, you know, our minds, we're, we're on that 24-hour news cycle. And before we know it, we've moved on to the next hot topic. And we've, man, we've forgotten what we were upset about two days ago or even a week ago. We need to not be complacent. We need to be urgent about revival. We need to be urgent about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The solution, the answer, is not adapting to an ideology. It's not joining a political party. It's the message of the gospel. Our gospel message that all are sinners and need a Savior. I don't care what kind of letter follows your political name, you need Jesus. I don't care what your views are on marriage, you need Jesus. I don't care what your views are on gender and sexuality and all of these issues, you need Jesus. And if we think, if we get satisfied with our culture beginning to tend back toward what we're comfortable with, you see, that's what a lot of Christians want. They just want our culture to get back to what we were comfortable with. They're not looking for radical change. Let me tell you that what was needed in the 1950s in our country was the same things that's needed now, revival and the gospel. And I'll say this, there will be in hell, there will be many conservative, Republican, uh, I'm trying to think of other words to throw out here, you understand what I'm saying? There will be many people who will hold to conservative ideology who will not make it to heaven. Why? Because that's not what gets you into heaven. And if our country became 100% pro-life, as I believe is as biblical as it can be, if our whole country became pro-life, if our whole country took a stand on social issues that I've talked about, there would still be those that need to hear the gospel. In fact, it would be even harder to share the gospel because some would be convinced that they were moral and they were ethical and they were right. Let's not be complacent. Let's respond with fervency. Here's the last one I want to give you. Number 10. This is so, so very important because all these other things start weighing on your mind. And I can see some of your minds. You can see it in your eyes. You say, oh, man, this is a burdensome truth. This is a burdensome topic. Let's respond in hope rather than despair. I am optimistic about the future. Amen. I'm not optimistic about everything that's going to happen in the future. 
but I am optimistic about the future. Why? Well, because God is in control. We sang just a moment ago, didn't we? Behold our God seated on his throne. He's the one that's in control. He's the one that's in charge. Isaiah 14, 24, the Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so shall it come to pass. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. God's purpose will come to pass. God's plan. This, all the way our culture's headed, none of this caught him by surprise. He knew what was going to happen. He knew what would take place. And he is still on the throne. He's the one that's in control. Remember this, Isaiah 46. Remember this and show yourselves men. Bring it to mind again. Remember the former things of old. I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done. What's going to happen in our culture of preacher? I don't know. What's going to happen in our country? What's going to happen in our society? I don't know. But I'm hopeful for the future because God has declared the end from the beginning and the things not yet to happen. Listen to this last phrase. He says, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. So I respond with hope. I can turn on the news and see all that's taken place and see the direction this country's headed. Uh, I saw a little sign the other day that said, um, why are we in this handbasket and where are we headed? <laughs> I said, that's exactly the way a lot of people feel. I'm not headed there. I'm headed to heaven. I know God's on, on the throne. He's in control. And I am hopeful about the future because what he has purposed will come to pass. This did not surprise God and his purpose will not fail. My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Is there reason for hope? Is there reason for us to have confidence no matter what happens? Well, preacher, what if, what if this law gets passed and gets signed and becomes the law of the land and Christians start being persecuted? then we'll do exactly what Christians for centuries and around the world today have done. We'll still proclaim the gospel. We'll still serve Jesus Christ. We'll still worship the God that sits on the throne. Nothing will change. Pastor, a number of years ago, some years ago in Africa, gathered together with believers to preach for an Easter service. He said it was following a a time of persecution. And when I say persecution, I don't mean the pressure that we feel in our culture and our society. I'm talking about full-blown persecution. Family members being dragged away, put to death, being tortured, being harmed, uh, constant danger. And after a week of that, of especially intense persecution, they gathered. And he said that the believers gathered together and he said they came from all over the place. He said some walked, some rode bikes. They, they came every way they could. And he said about 7,000, by 9 o'clock on that Easter Sunday morning, 7,000 Christians had gathered in that village to hear the message of Easter. He got up to preach and as he preached, he said people were so hungry for the word. He said the leaders of the church were praying and the people were so hungry. 
And he preached on the power of Jesus Christ. He said they were so hungry that he just couldn't quit. And he said they kept asking for more and more. And he ended up preaching three and a half hours. He said they've come from so far. They've made such an effort to be here. They weren't there for just a 30-minute sermon. So he preached for three and a half hours. And when he went to sit down, they said, More, why are you quitting? Why are you stopping? He said, Well, give me just a moment to catch my breath. And he took a short, short break. And he came back and he preached for another three hours. And he said they, just, they were so hungry. The people were so hungry for the word of God, even in this time of persecution. He said he walked away just a short distance to his house. After finishing preaching, he was weary. And he opened the door, and he stepped through the door, and as the door closed behind him, he said he looked around, and he said there were five rifles pointed at his head. And these men had come into his house, and they said, we're going to kill you for preaching the gospel. He said as he stood there, he said he didn't know what he was going to say. But he said the words just, he said it was, the, it was God that spoke. And he said, he heard himself saying to them, I'm not going to plead for my life. I'm already dead and my life is hid with Christ. But he said, I will do this. He said, I'm going to pray that you will escape eternal judgment. That you will, that God will forgive you. He said when he said that to them, he said they lowered their rifles and he said the face of the leader just completely changed. And he said, will you pray for us now? And so he bowed his head and he said, God, you have forgiven men in the past. Forgive these men. Help them come to know your forgiveness and salvation. They put their guns on their shoulders and they walked out the door. And they told him on the way out, they said, we're not going to harm you or your family. We're not going to harm any of these believers out here. And they left. He said he thought about it as it ended. And he said, here I was surrounded by 7,000 people. And I couldn't call out to one of them for help. The, the leader that had brought him to this place to preach, he said, I couldn't reach out to him. I couldn't have called out to him and gotten his connections to come and help protect me. He said, I couldn't have even called out to my brother pastors for them to pray for me. And he said it was in that moment, with my mouth frozen and no words coming from my mind, in that moment with death so near, it was not my sermon that gave me confidence. It was not some, even some truth from Scripture or truth from that sermon that gave me confidence. He said it was the living Christ that gave me the confidence to face a gun pointed right at my face with a man telling me he's going to kill me. You and I may never stand with guns pointed at our heads, but we look at our society and we see the decline. We see that it is increasingly against the truth of Scripture and against God. The only thing that will give us confidence, the only thing that will give us hope, the only thing that will help us to stand for truth and stand true to God's word is the hope of the living Christ. Amen. How will we respond? Will we respond with outrage? Will we become overwhelmed by it? Or will we use it as an opportunity to exalt the one that sits on the throne and proclaim the gospel? Father, we live in challenging times. And Father, I do not want this church family to 
respond wrongly. Lord, it's easy for us to be right but respond wrongly to what is taking place and to the people who believe differently than we do. Father, we do not affirm sin, but we know that the people around us are those that created in your image and for whom Christ died. So, Father, as we think about our world and we think about our country, we think about our families, we think about our church, give us this morning, Lord, a sense of urgency to call out to you. You are our only hope. The living Christ, I pray this morning that you will speak to our hearts. Burden us with an urgency for you, for your glory, for your work in us.